You're listening to The Future of Food Is You, a production of the Cherry Bomb Podcast Network. I'm your host, Abina Samwa, and each week I talk to emerging talents in the food world and they share what they're up to, as well as their dreams and predictions for what's ahead. As for me, I'm the founder of The Eden Place, a community that's all about gathering people intentionally around food. I love this new generation of chefs, bakers, and creatives making their way in the worlds of food, drink, media, and tech. Today's guest is Zainab Issa. She's a writer, recipe developer, and founder of Taste Good, a social campaign that supports charities through hosting fun food-forward events. We talk about her upbringing as a third culture kid, the lessons she learned from her time in the Bon Appetit test kitchen, and how she is managing her time as a freelancer, as well as why she decided to use her platform to give back to the world. Stick around to hear more about her debut cookbook coming out in 2025. Thank you to Kerrygold for supporting The Future of Food Is You. Kerrygold is the iconic Irish brand famous for its rich butter and cheese made in Ireland with milk from grass-fed cows. The holidays are here, and I'll certainly be celebrating with Kerrygold. I'm participating in a few cookie swaps this December, and Kerrygold's pure Irish unsalted butter sticks are on my ingredient list. I think I'll be making some classic gingerbread and a few cranberry orange squares. And what are the holidays without a cheese board? Kerrygold Skellig and Kerrygold Aged Cheddar are perfect snacking cheeses. They pair well with my favorite water crackers and delicious cured meats like a good mortadella or prosciutto. Add honey, jam, or some fresh fruit to round out your grazing spread. If hors d'oeuvres are your jam, turn to Kerrygold Cashel Blue Farmhouse Cheese. There are endless possibilities, and you can make some blue cheese fig bites, whipped blue cheese crostinis, or just sneak in a few little nibbles as you're preparing your big feast. Make the most of your holiday season with Kerrygold. Look for their butter and cheese at your favorite supermarket, specialty grocery store, or cheese shop. Visit KerrygoldUSA.com for recipes, product information, and a store locator. Happy holidays! Now, let's check in with today's guest. Zainab, thank you so much for coming on the Future Food Is You podcast. Thank you for having me. Where did you grow up and how did food show up in your life? Okay. I grew up in northern New Jersey and food showed up in my life in the home. My grandmother lived with us for like a good part of my childhood. The kitchen was her domain. She is a very, very, very specific cook. She takes it very seriously. And that was how I started getting into the kitchen. And then also like TV. The Food Network was Channel 29, and Disney Channel was Channel 31, and I would just, like, (laughs) flip between the two on commercials always, and then eventually just stopped even bothering watching Disney Channel, and just sat through and watched Barefoot Contessa, Jada at Home, Semi-Homemade, like, all of those shows definitely influenced the way that I cook today, but I would say between my grandmother, my mom, and those TV shows, that's where my love for cooking and food began. Your family is originally from India? So originally from India, migrated to East Africa, like generations of people in East Africa, and then from there migrated all over the place. I have family in London, Florida, New York, New Jersey now. My parents immigrated in, I think, the 80s. When you think about the dishes that your mom and your grandma were making, yeah. or even your, your relatives, what were some of the dishes that were at the table for yeah. the most part? So kukupaka is number I one. That, I yeah. would, oh, I, <laughs> I know. Yeah. It's great. That is like a chicken braised in like a turmeric mm. coconut milk. It's so good. You can also do that with fish, and it's called machipaka. Machi means fish, kuku means chicken. 
And then there's also biryani, kojo biryani, Swahili biryani. It's very specific. It's not like the biryani that you find in India at all. It's very saucy. There's both goat and beef, sometimes only goat. Super delicious. Yeah, um, goat is also a big like parallel between African and yeah, Indian cuisine. Exactly. Yeah. The spices that are used feel very Indian, but then the cooking method, the, the introduction of tomato is not as. What else is there? There's so many. There's barazi, which is pigeon peas and coconut. There's oh, chuku chuku or mix, which is like a turmeric potato soup that you have with like shredded cassava. That's mm. like super crunchy, like crunchier than kettle cooked chips, if you can even imagine that. And then there's bajia, which like also has Indian roots that you would put in mix. There's dizimbichi, which is like a banana plantain that gets braised in coconut milk as well. It's super thick, sweet. There's a lot of coconut for sure. Wow. A lot of spices. It's like a very interesting mix of Middle Eastern food, Indian food, and the local cuisine, like ugali and stuff like that. Yes, ugali and pop. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. You're super lucky you were able to have a beautiful family that really used food as the core, and you got to experience such authentic dishes in so many ways. For yourself, when did you start to feel like food had become a way for you to share and care the people around you? Probably when I was like eight or nine, I realized that it would make my sisters like me. (laughs) (laughs) That is important. Yeah. You got to know your audience. Yeah. (laughs) If I knocked on their door without something, they would not let me in. But if I had a molten chocolate lava cake, I was allowed to come in. (laughs) Yeah, say less. (laughs) The kitchen was where like my family spent the most time. So it just was like a natural expression of love. Like, oh, okay, if this is how I can show up, for us. Like if I make something, everyone will come downstairs. When my sister's making something, like she'll let me help. A time for family bonding, which I've always really valued. I love their company. They're my favorite people. So <laughs> so when you were in college, you published a zine that was all about food. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about it? And then how did that start to impact relationship to food now that you were almost on a different side or a different angle of it? Yeah. When I think about that zine, it's truly crazy because while I, I was cooking a lot as like a young teen, like probably up until 16 I was cooking a lot. I tried to go to culinary school and my parents just didn't think it was like would be lucrative and they were like no like you got a full scholarship to this finance school you're gonna do finance and I was like okay I guess this is it and then at the same time I was I think I don't know where this like narrative of like cooking being this ultra domesticated supporter of the patriarchy everyone that's in the kitchen is stepped on kind of vibe was like really running through my head and I sort of like lost touch of like loving to cook because I felt like it was pushing an agenda that I didn't support. Mm -hmm. If I'm going to continue to cook and love to cook, I'm supporting men. You know what I mean? And like Mm -hmm. not uplifting myself, which is like very much so a community narrative for me. It's definitely rooted in a lot of women in my community taking that more traditional homemaker path. I just kind of stepped away from it. I It stopped being something that was bringing me that much joy. And I was pursuing other things. And then the zine came about because in my senior year of college, I was in my minor was art. I was in the thesis course. The task for the semester was to create a project that was like a commentary on the political climate in the U.S. at the time, which Trump was in office. Things were very like mm-hmm. funky. People were very all over the place. And when I thought about, like, how do you get people to talk about things that make them uncomfortable and maybe have differing opinions better than with food and, like, creating a space of, like, okay, already both of us know that we need to eat. So we're already reminded of how similar we are, like, on a human level. And so from there, I thought about all of these recipes that I've been eating my whole life that I've never seen any real public representation for. I was like, hmm, let me, like, Let me try and document these recipes. At that same time, COVID hit. 
I ended up being at home and having the time to cook like that and test these recipes and keep cooking and FaceTime my mom, FaceTime my grandma, get them to show me and cook alongside with me. It was really, the timing was, it's crazy to think about. Then when I submitted the project, my professor was kind of just like, you need to publish this. And at the same time, I had been posting like what I was eating on TikTok. Less so recipes that were developed by me, but more so like, this is how I cook and this is what I make kind of vibes, like more a diary of what I was eating and what I was making. And the two just coincided at the same time. And so I was like, you know what, let me just take a chance. I remember wanting to print 50 books. I was like, maybe I can sell 50. And my husband was like, no, we're going to print 500. And I was like, no, we're not going to do that. He's like, no, we're going to print 1,000. I was like, what am I going to do with a thousand copies of this? Sell them all. I I guess so. Yeah. And then just like through the TikTok growing, through like Mm -hmm. me feeling the pressure of like literally boxes of these sitting in my room and just being like, okay, I I have to sell these. Yeah. Uh, All a thousand sold, which is crazy. That's awesome. It seems like you really are empowered to not just buy food being this way for you to connect, but also for you to build community. Yeah. And so you talked about your TikTok what was the inspiration for getting on TikTok and how do you think it also helped oh, you develop that I think relationship? I was bored. I was taking classes. I had just left my internship at The Knot in January because I went to go study abroad. And then when I came back, that's when COVID started hitting. So I ha- didn't have an internship or a job and I was just taking classes and... I was like, okay, like, I guess here we are. I got on TikTok because I was bored and I started consuming the content. And I was like, okay, I feel like I could do this. And it was really just random. I didn't think anyone would ever really see the videos. The first one is atrocious. You can go watch it. (laughs) I leave it up there to remind myself. Like, stay humble. (laughs) Remember your roots. (laughs) What was it about? I'll tell you all about it so you don't have to watch it. Um, (laughs) It was Jarrell Guy's strawberry spoon cake. Yes. An iconic recipe. Mm -hmm. Phenomenal cake. I make it every year. And it was just me filming myself doing that. Did you have the hands and pans or is it more just a classic barefoot contessa uh, shot? No, no, no. Yeah, it was. I think it was hands and pans. Nice. Definitely did not have the balls to be in any videos. I still don't. (laughs) It's funny you say that because you end up working at Bon Appetit. Yeah. Especially after the whole, let's call it fiasco that happened there in 2020. How did you get the job? Emily Schultz, I guess, was following me on TikTok and Instagram and at the time that I was pushing the zine. I think I sent it to her or something, and she connected me with Chris Morocco and Andy Baragani, and I did a video interview, but with no purpose. I didn't know why I was doing it. And I remember walking them through like a recipe that was in the zine, cooking it for them over Zoom, and just chatting with them about why they chose to stay there, considering everything that was happening. And I resonated with what they were saying, that like if you want to fix something, you have to like do the work. So I understood their perspective. I feel like I did that that Zoom in like the fall or winter of 2020. And then I think I got the job the following year, 2021, in August. So it was a very long interview process. I remember them being specifically concerned naturally about like me not having been to culinary school and that generally being a highly desired trait of someone who gets the job as yeah. food editor. Or even having culinary experience. Some, yeah. some people haven't been to culinary school, but they've worked in restaurants. Yeah. They, know, exactly. they know the lay of the land, the yeah. way of the kitchen. And yeah. I had only ever done front of house jobs at restaurants, never back of house. I loved the back of house dynamic, but I just never ended up... By the time I decided that I wasn't going to be in food, I just never bothered again. Yeah. And then I remember I took a job at BuzzFeed in the spring, I think. And at that same time, I'm a month in, Chris Morocco emails me being like, hey, we have an opening and we'd love for you to interview. 
And I was like, oh, like, I'm actually at BuzzFeed right now. So sorry. (laughs) (laughs) And then two, two and a half months in, I remember feeling like, all right. I don't know how I feel about this. Mm-hmm. Just like the content machine of it all. I mean, to be honest, I didn't know that wherever you go, it's going to be a content machine. It felt very turn over there. And mm-hmm. so that is not, there's nothing wrong with it. Everyone's got to do it. But it just wasn't resonating with me as much as I had hoped it would. So I emailed him back being like, if that's still open, like I would love to interview. And then I ended up interviewing the, I feel like the hiring process took forever, maybe two or three months of just like meeting different people. I had a call with Christina Che. I had another call with Chris. I sent in an edit test. And when I got the job, obviously, I was ecstatic. Definitely like a dream job in so many ways. And yeah, I crossed over with Andy for a little bit. That was really lovely. He taught me a lot in like the two days that we worked together because my first story he was working on as well. So we worked closely on that one. Obviously, in that environment, you're encountering so many like ultra talented people. So you learn a lot. Let's take a quick break and we'll be right back. Don't miss the new holiday issue of Cherry Bomb's print magazine, Host with the Most. It features culinary superstar Molly Boz on the cover. Inside the issue, you'll find recipes perfect for gatherings, hosting tips from the chicest food folks around, and a fun gift guide. You can get a copy or subscribe at cherrybomb.com. Or you can find a copy at one of our amazing retailers like Kitchen Arts and Letters in New York City, Smoke Signals in San Francisco, and Matriarch in Newport, Rhode Island. You can check cherrybomb.com for our complete list of retailers. I will say, I mean, I know you're sitting here, but I do love your videos. They are very comforting. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Was there anything that you learned in that time from your career that you think has really helped you right now? You know, you mentioned you hadn't gone to culinary school. Yeah. You hadn't really been on camera cooking, mm-hmm. teaching people. A lot of your food was more just like to make it make people yeah. happy. Definitely crash course culinary school kind of. Everyone in that in that environment was so, so warm to me. They taught me so much. I learned how to skin a fish from Chris Morocco. Wow. So just like random things that like as a home cook, you never really encounter. Like how often do you need to skin a fish? But like now I know how to do it. So I learned tons of technical skills, but also I think Honestly, the I'm not a, the best public speaker. And so to be able to, like, do the videos, I remember dreading the, the day they were going to ask me to be on the YouTube channel. You because can't tell. Still to this day, like, if they ask me again, because I haven't done it in so long, I feel like I would be like, mm, let me think. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yes. It yeah. never, for me, I never got used to it. Mm. The nerves always hit. It's a very vulnerable position to be in there's so many things happening like not only am I trying to cook well right and like know my recipe I'm also trying to explain to you why I'm doing what I'm doing and tell you that I'm doing it all at the same time yeah and it really does take like a village to make one of those videos you know what I mean so it's there's so much going into it there's a potential for so many people to see it obviously putting yourself in that position also you have to be ready for criticism which is inevitable so being able to do that is probably the thing that I'm most proud of that I did there was like say yes to doing that. But what advice would you give to someone who's in your shoes, you know, let's say they're a new grad, really want to work at a big food publication, yeah, but aren't quite sure how to make that right step? Prove that you have the skills, that you've been working at them. I don't think, had I not had so many internships, albeit not in food, but in media and editorial, combined with the like online resume of my socials, that I would have gotten the job. But I think I was proving that I had the skills in other ways, even though it wasn't in this exact, like, I'm a recipe developer kind of way that made that company want to take the chance on me. And that's where I got to hone those skills even further. So you decide to leave Bon Appetit and go freelance. Yeah. 
What motivated that decision? Honestly, I haven't talked about this at all just because, I don't know, I don't think anyone cares, but um, I <laughs> uh, my sister got really sick in May of this year. She got diagnosed with like a really specific form of thyroid cancer. She lives in Florida. And so just honestly, between heading back and forth to Florida, my cookbook supposed to be, the manuscript was supposed to be submitted in September. It was just like a very trying time. I knew I would not be able to finish the cookbook combined with the work that I was doing there. It is very similar work. And I'm the kind of person that whatever the most imminent task is in front of me will get my best. And so anytime I would get assigned a story, I'm pulling ideas that probably should should have been in the cookbook for the magazine. So there's that toss up of like, oh, I don't want to save it. Like, I just want to I want to use it for this because it works for this. Yeah. And there's rules, too, about like what you can publish and what you can have. In your exactly. Cookbook, so. yeah. yeah. So my cookbook is the premise is on identity. And there's only so many. Right. That I can pull on. So it just felt like the right time. I think I learned a ton. I enjoyed my colleagues thoroughly. But between all of the just all of the external factors combined with the cookbook, I was just kind of like, OK, this feels like if there's ever a time, this is it. I'm sorry to hear about your sister and I hope she's doing yeah, okay. Yeah, she is for okay. sure. Yeah. yeah, that's so great to hear. You, you did bring up your book yeah. and it seems like that was a really big decision and wanting to have more time to focus on it. Yeah. Because it is a lot to It's a huge to be... undertaking. It's crazy to me. Yeah. I don't know how anyone does it ever. You gave a little hint about it's about identity and it's coming out in 2025. Yeah. I'm really excited for that. Yeah, my publisher was gracious enough to let me push it. So now the manuscript is due in March. There you go. And then 2025 is, spring 2025 is the set, the published date, hopefully. You talk a little bit about it being about identity. What what kind of lies underneath that? So I think of myself as like your quintessential third culture kid. I feel like I have fused the culture that my parents have very much with the culture of the place that I've grown up, which is America. I also think of American food as not being hamburgers, french fries, hot dogs. I feel like all of the cultures that are present in America, all of like the elements of them that end up showing up, that's American food. That's reflective of the people that live here. I guess the narrative of the book is American food through my lens. What do I consider to be American food? There's also going to be like some more traditional recipes in there as well, because that's such a big part of my life. So in a lot of ways, it's like a biography and recipes kind of thing. I grew up a third culture kid, so I grew up confused because yeah. I feel like you're never enough for one place no, and you're never enough for the place that your parents came from. How do you think about preserving culture while fusing techniques? And how has that almost given you a sense of clarity on that? Like, I'm just going to be someone who yeah. exists differently in a lot of places. Yeah, that's like truly the reality yeah. of my existence. As long as I try and be one thing or the other, I'm never actually being myself. And I think when it comes to recipe development, definitely you have to continue to cite. Like anything else, you cite your references. I'm not going to pretend like I thought of a beefy braised tomato and onion dish over a bed of rice. Yeah. I didn't. It comes from somewhere else. And I'm going to tell you where it came from. And that's my responsibility. Everything exactly. comes from somewhere. Yeah, There's definitely original and unique ideas, but it came from somewhere else. And I feel like we have a responsibility to mention it at the very least. When you are thinking about the recipe development for this book, yeah. where are you drawing inspiration from? Like if you were oh to God. cast the mood board, yeah. what does it look like? There's a lot of, honestly, my inspiration is a lot of nostalgia tons of dishes in there that are just like, this dish it brings me comfort. So nostalgia is definitely huge inspiration. And then also just like travels, the people I've encountered, the people I've met through living in New York and New Jersey. Yeah, I would say it's mostly like my life. 
<laughs> We're huge manifestors on the podcast. Yes. So I have to ask, okay. is there a dream recipient for the book? Honestly, I feel like because I can't even imagine like a tangible version of it, I'm like, I just want it to like enter my mom's hands. You know That's what I mean? So like if that happens, cute. that would be psycho. <laughs> yeah. I can't wait for the video. Just I know. Of that. I love when people show videos of like their family yeah. like receiving the book. That's so special. And she's such a huge part of my life and my cooking. And she's such a huge support for me. If she ever gets to see it and hold it, which it feels like, how am I going to finish this huge task right now? Yeah. That'll feel like a, a huge accomplishment. You can, and you definitely <laughs> will. I also want to talk to you about your initiative, Taste Good. Oh, yeah. What was the inspiration behind this charity initiative? So Taste Good is basically like a series of events mostly focused around food that are intended to have like a charitable component. The idea of like a social club of people who like to do good was another thesis project in college. At the time, it was called OMS, and it was more of like a charity consultant vibe. Just because I feel like, and I still do feel like, most people don't know about so many charitable initiatives that are doing incredible work. Obviously, they don't have the bandwidth to market the same way like American Heart Association does or St. Jude's. Not to say that those aren't doing incredible work, but there's a level of admin fees associated there that don't apply here. And so your money goes further. And so if you're going to be donating, like, I think you should put your money where it's going to really yeah. do a lot of work. That was that idea. I didn't have the network. I didn't have the resources. It was just a thought. Fast forward two years, I'm starting to see, like, becoming more of an influencer, doing branded deals. And I'm like, if I can push product, I feel like I can push charities. So wow. Taste yeah. Good is basically a marketing firm for all the charities that don't have the funds to market. And I hope that I can keep doing it. I like yeah. can't believe it's out in the world. But now it's more so about the keeping the momentum, being able to organize more events, getting people excited. This first one was invite only just because I wanted to work out the kinks with a very yeah, intimate people. group of people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And there definitely were like there are with every first time thing. But now I want to like open it up to other people, like hopefully make it ticketed. Definitely do like a wide variety of events. I don't want it to just be dinners. I would love to do a movie screening. So I would cute. love to do a picnic, a bake sale, like that kind of stuff. Just bring people together over a shared cause and hopefully bring some awareness to some organizations that are doing really incredible things. We benefited the Migrant Kitchen Initiative, yes. which is completely externally funded. So their enterprise, the Migrant Kitchen, funds the Migrant Kitchen Initiative. So every single dollar that's donated goes straight to the cause, mm. which is really unique to have no admin fees associated with yeah. your donation. And the way that they present the meals is they're just like so detail oriented. They make sure that if you're Muslim, you're not getting a meal with pork in it. If you're, pick, yeah, if you're yeah. picking up from a community fridge, chances are you're microwaving that food. So the container that it's given to you in needs to be microwave safe. Those small things make such a difference. It was beautiful to like be benefiting them for the first one. We were able to raise a good amount of money, which is so nice. It's basically like social campaigns for charities. I'm really excited for this new, refreshing take on charity and people yeah. feeling like they can really contribute and have yeah. a good time. Yeah, I want to work with a ton of people. So yeah. if anyone who's listening wants to work together on it, hit we me met, up. <laughs> let's manifest some charity on here. How are you able to balance all these different aspects of food media that you're in? And how do you think about rest in regards to like, the creativity that you need from all these different places? Yeah, I'm definitely like someone who ebbs and flows in phases, for sure. I have periods where I'm like really head down, and then I have periods where like I'm fully couch potato kind of vibe. I'm definitely more of a homebody, so rest is super important to me, and sometimes that means saying no to events that I would have loved to show up to, but that's the thing that usually drops off for me is the like social component, which 
sucks, but something's got to give. Especially New York. I feel like that's... Oh, my God. If you're not outside... I know. You, you don't There's know There's something every single night. It's amazing because people really love to get together here, and that's beautiful. But sometimes I'm just like, ooh. Netflix and yeah. takeout. Yeah. <laughs> Not takeout for you because you're, you're a professional. <laughs> no, so. I love takeout. <laughs> Robin noodles, my best friend. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> love that. Is there a piece of advice that you've received from a mentor? Because it sounds like you have been so blessed by learning from others. And yeah. It gives you a lot of joy. Is there something that you've learned from someone that you almost pass down to others who reach out? Because I'm sure so many people reach out to you being yeah. like, I love what you do. I want to do it. Mm. How do I get started? This is something that I've picked up through talking to people and basically asking higher ups at all of the jobs and internships I've had, like, what makes someone stand out to you? What makes you want to keep them on your team? And they just say, like, someone who takes initiative and tries. And that's what I mean when I say, if you want to get into food media, show that you can be in food media by displaying your skills outside of the field. So I think just showing up and trying and putting your best foot forward always is genuinely the best piece of advice. You don't need a brand behind you to, like, take beautiful photos of food, to go out to a restaurant, like, document the things that you're already doing and use them as your resume. Yeah, it is truly amazing how many people have just a simple iPhone. Yeah, literally. Can produce so much content. Go on LinkedIn, look up people doing the jobs that you want to do, find them on Instagram, shoot them a DM, shoot your shot. And know that the opportunities that do end up falling in your lap, you're ready for. Mm-hmm. You wouldn't be there if you weren't. Something I've I've loved about you as a, as a fellow woman of color is how much you are true to who you are and true to oh, the fact you that so you much. are. <laughs> uh, you know, yeah, I think especially for a lot of us who've grown up third culture kids, yeah. especially in America. How do you hope that your work inspires more women and specifically women of color? Yeah, I think the biggest thing is like seeing people doing the things that you want to do. Even to this day, sometimes I look around and I'm like, who could I talk to about this? You know what I mean? And that means that we need more. Mm -hmm. And also just remembering that you could be that person. You don't necessarily need to look to someone else. You, You could be the person that people look to. So don't feel like just because you don't see it, it can't happen. It definitely is harder. Yeah. I'm not going to say that it's not, but I guess be the change you wish to see. That's cliche, but it really does. How do you think about your work, obviously your cookbook's coming out and you produce a good amount of recipes. Yeah. How do you hope that your work creates room for conversations about diversity and representation within the American food landscape? Yeah, I think my hope is that when you make a recipe, there's like a level of appreciation and that'll incite a level of curiosity and that'll incite a level of acceptance. And once someone has your attention, then from there, it's a snowball. They're going to want to learn about you. They're going to they're gonna hopefully appreciate like where you come from, what you have to offer, and start seeing you and other people like you that way. The hope is that I can just pique someone's interest, and then it'll happen naturally from there. Yeah. I know we spent all our time talking about food, because actually, <laughs> this is a food podcast, but you yeah. are probably one of the most fashionable people oh, thank you. <laughs> on social media. Every time you post a fit, I'm just like, I, I need that. <laughs> Even if it wouldn't fit me, I'm like, I still need that. How do you think about your personal style in terms of how you present yourself? Yeah. And does food have any connection or inspiration piece um, at all? I think that I approach design and style the same when I'm like food styling and coming up with a recipe and how I want it to look visually and putting on an outfit. I love juxtaposition. If I have this big homogenous beefy braise, keeping a garnish very loose and big on top of it to contrast that 
is also what I do with an outfit. If I'm wearing really big pants, like I'm wearing today, I'm going to wear a tighter top. Mm -hmm. If I'm wearing a collared shirt that's more structured, I'm going to wear parachute pants or something that has like the opposite vibe. And I think that that makes things look interesting. They might not look as great as they could, but they look like something you want to look at and figure it out and decipher how you feel about it. Yeah. Maybe I'm not directly inspired by food or vice versa. I definitely think my approach to both is the same. If we were to, you know, get dinner or have this conversation again in five years, yeah. where do you hope to see yourself? What things would you be excited about doing? Hopefully in five years, I'm writing another cookbook. I want to open a cafe. I feel like that's the most cliche thing in the world, but I genuinely want like a little small community-based. I want to be running that. I want that to be like my day-to-day. And I want to keep doing Taste Good. I hope that it's a bigger, like a much bigger part of my life. Yeah, I think that that would be five years. And I hope I have a little baby. <laughs> oh, that's so cute. Yeah. So, Zainab, we are going to do our future flash five. Okay. How are you feeling? Good. Okay, let's do this. The future of food equality. Advocacy. The future of food media. Individuals. The future of food fashion. Espresso, coffee, mm, cherries, pomegranate, persimmons. The future of cookbooks. Identity. And finally, the future of dessert tables. Doilies and lace. Amazing. Zainab, this was such a beautiful conversation. If we want to continue to support you, where are the best places to find you? On Instagram at Zainab underscore Issa. Nice. Awesome. Thanks so much. Thank you. Before we go, our guest is going to leave a voicemail just talking to themselves 10 years from now. You have reached the Future of Food is You mailbox. Please leave your message after the beep. Hi, me from 10 years from now. How's 35 feeling? As you know, things have been crazy this past year. We just kicked off Taste Good, our charitable event series that we both know has been years in the making. I hope you never forget how special it was to see all your friends, family, and the people you love in this industry sitting around a table, eating your favorite foods, laughing, talking, and most importantly, donating to a cause we care deeply for. I hope Taste Good turned into a successful project, and I hope it did good for the charities you partnered with. I hope we've hosted bake sales, dinner parties, picnics, you name it. And I hope that you've helped some folks in our generation make donating and volunteering a more active and reoccurring part of their lives. We're also currently in the weeds of our first cookbook, Talk About a Labor of Love. I really just hope you're proud of what you've published. I hope you still cook and love those recipes. I hope you're working on another one now. We both know there's too many ideas floating around in that head to have just one. I also hope you're happy. I hope you're traveling. I hope you're eating well. I hope you're still trying to make a difference with your work in whatever way you can. Did you ever end up opening that little daytime cafe? I can't wait to see it. Oh, and please tell me you've learned to appreciate your wins better by now. Talk soon. That's it for today's show. Do you know someone who you think is the future of food? Tell us about them. Nominate them at the link in our show notes or leave us a rating and a review and tell me about them in the review. I can't wait to read more about them. Thanks to Kerrygold for supporting our show. The Future of Food is You is a production of the Cherry Bomb Podcast Network. Thanks to the team at CityVox Studios, executive producers Carrie Diamond and Catherine Baker, Associate producer Jenna Sadu and editorial assistant London Crenshaw. Catch you on the future flip!